morning, friends. Um, golly, I hope each of you has had a truly great Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, we, we should be returning to the book of Acts before too long. I'm still not 100% sure. I might give you a little bit of Advent uh, next, next month, but we will be getting back to the book of Acts eventually unless something happens to me or Jesus comes back. Um, so if you would please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we are this morning. Philippians chapter 4. And once you get it, uh, you can keep your thumb there if you like, because that, that's our main passage for this morning. But before we get into the text, uh, I'd like to share some thoughts uh, in hopes that we can all kind of get in the same mindset, you know, be on the same page for this message. And before that, um, let, let's just ask the Lord to bless our reception of the word. So, Father God, we ask in Jesus' name, um, we, just, we, we ask that you will give us wisdom and discernment when it comes to the rightly dividing the word. I pray for each person here, Lord, that they will receive what you have for them. I thank you for your goodness, Lord, your greatness, Lord. I thank you for your grace and mercy that is lavished on us through your son, Jesus, and through this incredible season of Thanksgiving that I'm so grateful for, God. I, I, I ask that we don't just leave that behind us and, and jump into the, the, the consumeristic, materialistic, commercialized Christmas season and Instead, uh, let, let's maintain that sense, Father. Help us to maintain that sense of awe of who you are and all that you've done for us. And let that carry us forward as we, uh, we go into the end of this year and toward the new year. Father, also, just before we begin the message, I pray for our nation. I pray for the hearts of our leaders. I pray, Father, for conviction and salvation for our, our uh, government and, and Father, ask that, that those who, uh, who think that they know you and don't will have their eyes opened. And those who have never known you uh, and, and have never truly heard the gospel might hear the gospel and be reached. Father, the true gospel, not one of these false gospels that masquerades, but the truth, God, we need as a nation, we need to come back to our roots or we will be extinguished. Our light will be, our lampstand will be taken away. And Father, I realize that, that the church is truly where that lampstand resides. So help us, Lord, to stand firm in the face of what is coming and help us, Father, to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name. All right, folks. Um, while the kids are finding the bingo pictures, let's, let's see if you agree with what I'm about to say, okay? Of all American holidays, Thanksgiving may be the one that is the least corrupted by our secularized culture. Okay, would you agree with that? I mean, after all, where does the word holiday come from? Holy day, right. So, so what do you suppose would be considered the two most important holy days on the Christian calendar? Certainly, yes, Christmas and Easter are the top two contenders. In fact, enough people go to church only on Christmas and Easter that someone coined the term CEOs, meaning Christmas, Easter only. Uh, for people that attend on those days. It's very sad. But despite being holidays that Christians love, how are they typically celebrated in our culture? And by, by the way, this is not a bah humbug message. Okay, it's a, you know, so what if Jesus was probably born in the spring? I don't care. So what if the reason that we, we celebrate on December 25th is that the, the Catholics hijacked a pagan festival? It doesn't bother me. I don't care. It doesn't matter. I love that Christians celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter what calendar date it happened to be that he was born. Of course, society has exchanged the story of Christ for 
a fat fictional elf and made the holiday a frenzy of consumerism and stress, but I still love Christmas. It's good. But what about Resurrection Sunday? Our, our celebration of the risen Lord has also been co-opted by the secular. You know, the very name Easter comes from the fertility goddess Ishtar, hence the eggs and the, the hyper-reproductive rodents that we, you know, decorate with. You know, so, but we Christians, we know that's a distraction, okay? We celebrate our Lord and Savior rising from the dead after dying on the cross to pay for our sins, right? right. Amen. Okay, so now I'm, I'm not slamming, you know, parents who play imagination games with the kids. In fact, our, our family nor, normally does uh, an Easter egg hunt or an Easter basket thing. Um, my conscience never let me do the other, and I'm speaking in code for those blissfully ignorant tykes among us. But, um, but, but the point is that worldly culture has secularized these holy days and drawn the focus away from God the Father and away from our Lord Jesus Christ, so it means something different to them. But Thanksgiving has not yet had the same level of twisting to its meaning. Even those who don't recognize Christ as their Lord and Savior, even many atheists celebrate Thanksgiving by counting their blessings and showing gratitude. I asked a friend of mine who is a, he's an avowed atheist, uh, I asked him, so what are your thoughts on Thanksgiving? I was really curious, and I wanted to know. I asked him if I could quote him. He said yes. He replied it was his favorite day of the year. In fact, he said, quote, giving thanks, listen to this, giving thanks is almost like a mini church, but each person is delivering their own service when talking through what makes them thankful that year. He continues, I give thanks to my, to my circumstances and the people who have helped or that have helped to improve them. I love to reflect, and it's just such a wonderful time to do so, end quote. Of course, you and I would likely agree that giving thanks to circumstances doesn't make sense as opposed to, you know, thanking God for circumstances, but that's not the point. I quoted my friend because I want to demonstrate that the importance of being thankful is not just understood by Christians. You know, the famous Jewish author Dennis Prager, he, he has said multiple times that a person cannot be truly happy unless they are grateful, and I think he's right. And while this is never explicitly stated in the Bible, uh, the totality of Scripture bears it out to be true. Christians, of all people, should be the most grateful because God has opened our eyes both to our own sinfulness and also to, to His great mercy as is displayed through the sacrifice of His Son. We should be the most grateful people. But what do we do, friends? when we are struggling to feel grateful? What, what if we're feeling trapped at the, the other end of the emotional spectrum lately and, and we're, we're dealing with anxiety and depression and, and feeling like we're wandering in a spiritual wilderness? How, how can we experience the light of gratitude when we feel like we're in darkness? You know, sometimes, church, I think it's, I think it's helpful to get an historical perspective did you know that this year, this year, we celebrated the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving? Four centuries. The surviving pilgrims and, and the, their, their, those from the uh, Wampanoag tribe that, that joined them, they shared a harvest feast in the late autumn of 1621. And last year, we talked about this, last year was the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower's trip across the Atlantic in search of freedom in search of being able to, to, to follow Christ the way that they believed they were supposed to. They went to the new world. In fact, last, last Sunday, 
Uh, and you'll, some of you might say, no, no, I thought that was November 11th, if you pay attention to that. But actually, it was the 21st. They, they, the calendars had a shift. Last Sunday was the 401st anniversary of the signing of the Mayflower Compact, which was the precursor to the U.S. Constitution more than 160 years later. And by the way, if you're wondering, is this pertinent? Why are you bringing this? I promise this, this makes sense. Okay, so just bear with me. Are you familiar with the Mayflower Compact? Yes, we put on our makeup with it. No, I'm kidding. The, the, the Mayflower Compact was an agreement that was drawn up aboard the Mayflower while they were still in the middle of the ocean, okay? So that their colony would have a basis for self-government when they landed in America. And it's not a long document. In fact, the body of it is literally one run-on sentence, okay? So if you'll bear with me, I want to read it to you. Listen. Having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and of one another covenant and combine ourselves together in a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid, and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. Y'all, that's wordy, I know, but it's really, really good. In layman's terms, the point of the Mayflower Compact was that everyone who signed it, which was basically like every man on board, everyone who signed it agreed to establish and obey a system of common law, which at that point was as yet to be determined, right? And to do that for the good of the community. There's, there are all kinds of good reasons to have a social contract like this to maintain harmony in a community. But, but I want to focus on this one here where they explain why they are agreeing to this. For our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. Huh? <laughs> in other words, they were agreeing in order to accomplish a stated purpose. Where do we see that? Back at the beginning of the document. The reasons for going to the new world were clearly stated for anyone with questions. I want us to take a look at that again. Having undertaken for what? Oh, how about that? Friends, in, in, this, in these first words, the pilgrims identified their purpose in this courageous endeavor. First, they climbed aboard the, Mayfl the Mayflower and they, they embarked on this incredibly dangerous journey. This wasn't like hopping on a plane today. You know, they didn't know they were going to make it. Of course, we, you don't know you're going to make it with planes either, but it's a lot safer than ships back then, okay? So they had very little in the way of precedent for this trip, but they did so for the glory of God. And they weren't the first Europeans to try to settle in the New World, but they, they were the first to try to settle this particular part of the New World rather than joining a previously established colony. And many of those on board, they came as entire families. And most of them were seeking freedom to live with the religious convictions that they had as separatists. Because, see, the pilgrims were trying to get out from under the, the umbrella of the aggressive Church of England. They wanted to live out a more biblical faith instead of what was basically Catholic light, okay? And as such, they, they had been persecuted by the state church. So, it, it, it's interesting to me, their, their, their idea of glorifying God meant separating from a corrupt, state-run church, moving across the world, and then raising their own families according to the dictates of their spirit-led consciences. 
friends. Do you see the beauty of that? The simplicity of that? Some of you are like, that's why I have land, right? You know, that's why some of you homeschool. Please understand, leading your family and shepherding your children is a big deal. Raising your kids in Christ is a big deal. It may seem like a minor or a common thing, but it's a vast undertaking that truly glorifies God when it's done well. So, for the glory of God, and then the pilgrims specify that their purpose is for the advancement of the Christian faith. And then only after that do they mention, for the honor of king and country. What what does that mean, the advancement of the Christian faith? I mean, again, raising godly children is certainly an advancing of the Christian faith. But but that probably wasn't the only thing they had in mind. You you may know this. Um, The pilgrims had actually settled in Holland They moved out of England and settled in Holland for a decade between their time uh, in in the journey to the New World. And so America was probably their first home that that hadn't been already widely influenced by Christian evangelism. Because Holland was very, very Christian, at least in, you know, in their, in their civil society. So, uh, and there had been a few tribes at this point of the Native Americans who had had heard the, the gospel, and there were even some converts to Christianity, but it wasn't always an ideal situation. <laughs> you know, I mean, unfortunately, some Native Americans were converted as a result of being enslaved and displaced by European settlers, including Squanto, the, the guy that God later used to keep the pilgrims alive. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it awesome that our God, in His grace, can use such a, a, a horrible institution as slavery for the sake of good purposes. He used it in that point for a good purpose. To make that man who was at that time probably an animist or a spiritist, to make him into a Christian that he might come back and do amazing things and save a group of people. God can use anything, even a horrible thing like slavery. God can use it. So their main purpose was to glorify God and advance the Christian faith. But as most of you are probably aware, this trip was a pretty terrible experience for most of these settlers. You know, they, they, they were, it was not a pleasant time for them. You know, almost exactly half of them actually died in the first few months of being in the new world. They had been ravaged by disease. You know, at one point there were about half a dozen people that were caring for the rest of the survivors who were sick. In his recounting of this ordeal, William Bradford wrote, But it pleased God to visit us then with death daily, and with so general a disease that the living were scarce able to bury the dead, and ye not well in any measure sufficient to tend your sick. You know, times had grown desperate, and it looked grim, but the Lord had not abandoned the pilgrims. He sent someone to help them. Squanto. Talked about him a minute ago. He he was a Native American Christian who had been sent by Chief Massasoit of the Wampanoag people. And God used Squanto to rescue, to save the remaining 53 members of the Mayflower Party. He did this. He he taught them how to successfully grow corn. You probably know that, among other things. And, And the people were able to survive the winter of 1621 into 1622 because, or excuse me, 1620 into 1621 because the Lord gave them a bumper crop that fall. And these 53 American pilgrims 
hosted the first Thanksgiving for their neighbors, who are the Native Americans, not a single meal. It was three full days of feasting. Some of you are like, yeah, that's how we do it too, <laughs> right? Three full days of feasting. And this is, this is just a few months after William uh, Bradford wrote the, the, that horrible, he wrote of their misery. There's another guy named Edward Wilson, and he wrote, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, so that we might after a special manner rejoice together after we gathered the fruits of our labors, at which time many of the Indians coming among us, and amongst the men the greatest king Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. Remember, this, this was written by one of the survivors of a tragic winter, literally months after the Lord allowed half their number to die. But rather than losing faith, rather than growing bitter, the pilgrims chose to recognize God's provision. And despite the terrible grief, the near starvation, the disease, even, they even lacked a qualified you know, church presence to shepherd them, according to their memoirs. They recognized God's provision. And they gave Him glory for it. They chose not to wallow in the agonies of the past year. Instead, they were publicly, corporately thankful for His care. And even invited others to celebrate God's goodness with them. Despite having only 53 surviving colonists out of, I believe, an original 105, they invited their Native American neighbors to join them and fed 90 extra people. These are people they had originally built a fortress to protect themselves from. That was the first thing they did when they got there. Did you know that? Think about that the next time you want to gripe about hosting the in-laws for Thanksgiving. <laughs> okay? This sort of gracious behavior truly was the advancement of the Christian faith. Chief Massasoit became a believer as a result of all this. But see, this sort of godly response in a trial, that wasn't unique to them. In fact, they had a very good example who, by the way, wrote nearly a quarter of the New Testament. Anybody know who that is? The Apostle Paul. We really are going to get into Scripture today, I promise, um, in case you're wondering. I hope your thumb is still on that page. We're, we're going to look at some portions of one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. I love Philippians 4. We're going to start here with verse 4. We're going to go through verse 7. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then one of the most beautiful promises in Scripture, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is definitely one of my, my all-time favorite passages, not, not just due to the goodness of the commands, but the goodness of that promise that follows it. And we'll, we'll come back to the specifics of this passage in a few minutes. But for now, I just want you to think. Think about the human author of this text. Think about Paul. I mean, he seemed pretty clear, right, on, on the need to rejoice. And I guess it's not terribly surprising to find a command to rejoice, you know, in the Bible. But it's a lot more interesting when we consider the context. Somebody say out loud where Paul was right then. 
He was in prison, right? For what? Do you remember? For preaching the gospel? That was part of it. You know, that wasn't the specifics, but that's what led to it. He, he was writing, uh, actually, at, at this point, yes, I'm sorry, at this point, he was in prison for preaching the gospel. He was in Rome. He was writing the letter to the church in Philippi. But this wasn't his first time in prison, right? I mean, ironically, Paul's first time in jail that we know of as a Christian was actually in Philippi. If you want to quickly turn to Acts 16, you can. It'll be up here, uh, I think. But starting around the middle of the chapter, we read that, that Paul... He's made some people really angry because he healed this demon-possessed girl. Um, yes, you, you heard that right. He made some people angry by healing a demon-possessed girl because she had handlers that were making a lot of money off of her because she was a fortune teller. So they were furious about this exorcism, and so they arrested Paul. And the scripture says, The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Do you hear this? I mean, did you catch what's going on here? Folks, this, this is approximately halfway through Paul's, you know, his, his public ministry. It's not his first rodeo with people who hated him, but it's the first time we're told he goes to jail. And not just to jail. First, he and Silas are tortured by a savage beating, and then they're, they're locked up in wooden stocks, hunched over and tossed into the bowels of a nasty, dank, dark, first century dungeon. But what are they doing? They're singing. They're praising God. At midnight, you know, hunched over in, into these, these boards. How in the world were they able to rejoice in the dark? I'll tell you, it's going to sound familiar. By the way, if you're taking notes, the repetition is intentional. Okay? Because Paul had already identified his purpose as a Christian and as an apostle. And it was to glorify God and advance the Christian faith. That was his purpose. I mean, think about this. What, what is more surprising than a person who's been unjustly mistreated praising God in the middle of their pain? Is that how people typically react? No. What draws the attention faster than a bright light shining in the dark? Paul and Silas brought glory to God by celebrating his goodness in the middle of ugly circumstances. And as a result, the other prisoners were listening to their praises. And if you read on, you'll see that, that God miraculously releases them through an earthquake, but, but Paul and Silas don't run away. They actually stick around. They end up sharing the gospel with their terrified jailer who then comes to repentant faith in Christ and he's baptized in the wee hours of the morning along with his family. That is so cool. See, Paul, he didn't curse the circumstances despite their difficulty. He blessed the Lord. And he blessed others in the name of the Lord. And so God was glorified and the Christian faith was advanced. But how did Paul find such strength 
in the midst of the misery? And I think the simplest answer is it didn't come from him. It came from the Lord. And he makes this clear, if you want to flip back to chapter 4 in Philippians. Paul says something here that is arguably the most taken out of context passage in the New Testament, with the exception of judge not lest you be judged. Okay, I want to couch it in context because I want us to be able to grasp this. He writes, I have learned, remember from prison, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How many of you have heard that taken out of context? I used to work out with a guy who would, (laughs) I can do all things (laughs) through Christ. I'm like, really? Really, I don't think that's what that scripture means. But I'm not kidding, he would do that out loud. Paul isn't talking about getting a promotion at work. Or accomplishing, you know, some some great task. He's talking about making it through the day. In the midst of trying times. He can do all things through, through Christ who strengthens him. He's talking about surviving. Possibly even spiritually thriving. Despite feeling beat down by the power of Christ in him. And then skipping ahead to verse 18, he tells the Philippians, I am well supplied. Again, where is he? (laughs) Prison. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I I love how Paul, right right in the middle of of this, he, he just... The Holy Spirit leads him to just bust out in spontaneous praise, you know, and it happens a lot with Paul. I think it's great. What we're seeing here in this passage is the ability and that the ability to rejoice in the dark. It came from seeing present troubles as an extension of his purpose. I'm going to say that one more time and hopefully not mess it up again. (laughs) In this passage, we're seeing that the ability to rejoice in the dark came from seeing his present troubles as an extension of his purpose, which again is glorifying God and advancing the Christian faith, spreading the gospel. You know, that that theme is recognized all throughout this this letter. It's just spread all through it. And it's also from realizing God's provision of what was needed to do his work. You know, God's not going to give us a job without providing the way to accomplish it. And then it, it also comes, this, this ability to rejoice in the dark also comes from gratitude. From praising the Lord for his goodness in the middle of everything. And listen, you, you may notice I keep using phrases like, like in the midst of or in the middle of, and I keep saying despite. That is not an accident, okay? I keep saying that in this message because that is how I believe That is how and that is when the Christian faith is most powerfully expressed by God's people. He is glorified best. And his truth is expressed most beautifully, not by his people trusting and praising him when life is easy, but by his people trusting him and and rejoicing in him in the midst of a storm. That's when he is best glorified. So where does that apply to us then? 
Let's go back to verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Brothers and sisters, we must identify or possibly remember our purpose. Which, like Paul, like the pilgrims and pretty much every other Christian who's ever lived, our purpose is to glorify God and advance the Christian faith. You know, when we rejoice in the Lord, we're realizing the first part of that purpose. We're glorifying God. You know, we're finding our joy. We're finding our hope in who He is. And in His promise of eternal life and glory, not in our present circumstances. The stuff going on around us. When we let our reasonableness be known to all, we are advancing the Christian faith by proclaiming and living Christ. And of course, this is easier said than done, you know, when we feel like we're in the dark. I mean, right? You guys know this. If you ever suffered with anxiety or depression, uh, you know, as a person who's, who's struggled with clinical anxiety, I've been on medication for over a decade. Um, you know, I, I can admit this, y'all. There are times when the, when the emotional or the spiritual darkness just seems overwhelming. And, and just to be clear, you don't have to have a mental illness to deal with anxiety or depression either. There, there's plenty in this fallen world to bring us down, right? I mean, we, we can all agree with that, Yeah. I mean, friends, I, I, know, I know I've downplayed the minor difficulties, the minor struggles that Christians have in our nation compared to Christians in other places, but that doesn't mean that we never deal with any kind of persecution at all. You know, we may not be in imminent danger of losing our, our lives or our, our home or our property or our reputation yet or our freedom because of Christ, but we may experience persecution of a different type. And I think that many, many American believers are in anguish over the state of our nation. And believe it or not, there's a reward for that anguish. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just give you kind of a, a biblical precedent for that statement. Okay, this is from Ezekiel 9. I'll, I'll just sum it up for you. God, God shows Ezekiel a vision of a man in a linen cloak, and he's got a writing utensil in his hand, and is being followed by men with swords. Okay, And then in this vision, the Lord tells this man to go throughout the city of Jerusalem, he says, and put a mark on the foreheads of certain people. Now, what kind of people is he commanded to put the mark on? It's those, he says, the men who groan and sigh. The men who sigh, who groan, who lament over all these abominations that are committed here in the city. Why? Why put a mark on them? Because these are the people that lament the wickedness in their land. And friends, we know, we know that our country was founded by men of principle, generally speaking. But it has been co-opted by people who don't seem to have any principles. At least not godly ones. We see the spread of the completely nonsensical idea that children should choose their gender. And that grieves our spirit as Christians. We see the moral stain of the abortion industry and its blood-soaked reign of terror in our nation while hearing some people speak of it as though it were virtuous to kill a baby in the womb. We see terrible lawlessness 
in some parts of the country where, where police are literally commanded to stand down and allow people to do what the devil comes to do, steal, kill, and destroy. It seeps into our souls, doesn't it? It sickens us. It brings us grief. This anxiety that we feel about the godless direction of our world and of the nation, the depression, the despair, it becomes an illness in us. A sickness that, that seems to grow stronger in the dark. But God provides hope. God provides hope. He, he's promised us that one day he will make things right. You know, as Ezekiel's vision unfolds, we see that everyone who does not have God's mark on them, uh, th those who, who wholeheartedly embrace the, the immorality and the violence and the, the, the idolatry of the culture, their refusal to repent seals their fate. God gives them justice, while those who have the mark receive mercy. Church, we receive mercy because we have God's mark on us by grace through faith. We are covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. God's son, Jesus, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And he rose from the dead and is now interceding for us before the Father. And he has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. Brothers and sisters, since we know that to be the case, do we have anything else that we really need to fear? Is there anything in this life, in this world, that we need to be afraid of? The Lord is at hand. Why do we not have to fear? Because the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Well, easy for you to say, Paul, you're a super Christian, right? I think sometimes we put ourselves in that place where we go, well, you, but you don't know what I'm dealing with. Remember, church, this same Paul in 1 Corinthians recalled a time when he and his fellow apostles despaired of life itself. He says that. No one is immune we all struggle with the fact that things are not as they should be. Even our own hearts are not what they ought to be. And yet the Lord is at hand. You know, Christ in his, in his sovereign power and great mercy, he is here with us in the dark dungeon of our circumstances or in the dark dungeon of our thoughts, giving us the ability to walk in the light as he is in the light. We don't have to be anxious about anything, we can turn it over to him. We can trust in his, his miraculous ability to keep us in the palm of his hand and not let go. No matter what else is happening in our lives, we, we must recognize that he provides everything that we need to walk in the light with him, and then we should give him thanks for that. I mean, church, this, this is this is how we rejoice in the dark. Whether, whether or not the Lord sends an angel or an earthquake to free us like he did in Scripture, he, he is still with us. He's still with us in our deepest pits, in our most hopeless moments of darkness. You know, like 
when Jonah was in the belly of the beast, when, when Daniel was sealed up in a cave of hungry lions, you know, when, when, when Paul was in a dungeon, when, when the sun was in Gethsemane, God is there. Even in the dark, he's there. We know of his faithfulness because he provided his son to make sons out of enemies. And so we can trust him to provide the glorious future that he has promised. You know, like Paul, like the pilgrims, we, we look forward to the full realization of his kingdom come. And when we do this, when we, when we recognize his capability and bring our requests before him with a heart of thanksgiving, we can receive this blessing and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a good word. It's a promise. We, we may not experience it instantaneously. It may be incremental. I think for most of it, it will be. But the peace of God is available to you. You know, trust Him to provide it. Whatever's happening on the outside, He's with you in the dark. He's with you inside. He's with you. Trust Him. And that goes for whoever you are, wherever you are today, uh, in whatever situation you're in, in whatever state our nation and this world is in. Whatever your relationship with your spouse or your parents or your children or your job, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. Pray with thanksgiving and receive his peace. I just want to put out this invitation today. If you recognize I need the peace of Christ, I'm anxious, I'm more than happy to pray with you. More than happy. If you recognize today that you have not truly experienced the grace of God through Christ because you've not received Christ by faith, then I challenge you today to do so. To come forward and confess that faith in Jesus Christ and be immersed in water as the Bible teaches. And if you've taken those steps but you have not yet truly obeyed Christ and followed Him like the Word tells us to do, you need to repent Turn once again to the Lord. Follow Him. Walk with Him. But don't just decide in, in yourself. You know, I'm not going to say, just bow your head and say this little prayer. That's not how that works. It's something that you do. because You do it not just with the Lord Himself. You do it with the community of faith. So I want to challenge and encourage and invite you to do it publicly if you have any of those things to do. We're going to sing a, a song and um, just ask that if the Lord moves you in any way, please don't hesitate. Please don't say no to the Holy Spirit. Surrender all to Him I freely give I will ever love and trust him 
in his presence daily ask for each person here that you help us to see the truth in these words. We thank you that your word gives us such a beautiful promise. Help us, Lord, to not be anxious about anything but in everything with prayer and supplication to lift up our requests to you with thanksgiving because you say, you have said that when we do this, the peace of God, your peace, which surpasses our limited understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us daily to turn that anxiety over at the foot of the cross. Thank you for your son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.